Thanks for tuning in to the Follow Church weekly message. Our hope and prayer is that you will find this message uplifting and challenging as we seek to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. Malachi chapter 1. A prophecy. The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father... Where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But, you ask, how have we shown you contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to the governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Now plead with God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations, from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying, the Lord's table is defiled and its food is contemptible. And you say, What a burden! And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands? Says the Lord. Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal for the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty. And my name is to be feared among the nations. Amen. Let's welcome Graham. If we haven't met, I'm Graham. And uh, what I do in real life is I connect uh, what God's doing with people. So uh, I look at what God's doing in the world, how things are going around the place, different opportunities they are. And then I find people and talk to them about how they fit into that. It's an awesome job. I can't believe I actually get paid to do that all day. Uh, By the way, I'm looking for, at the moment, an apiarist, who is a person who keeps bees. 
So if you know someone who's interested in bees, I'd love to have a chat to you. And I'm also looking for an orchardist, who is a person who keeps trees. So bees and trees, and I'm having trouble finding those people. So if you know either of those, uh, in your uh, relative of yours, a friend of yours, I've got one already, uh, thank you. So I'd love to have a chat to you because uh, God is doing something with that and I need to find people who can work along with that. And that's actually where we're heading today, understanding what God is doing in the world and how we fit into that. Uh, today, it, well, it's about being ripped off. And I have been ripped off. Sometimes I have not got what I expected. For example, I bought a can of fly spray. I sprayed the whole can and not one fly came out. I have been ripped off. I bought a packet of budgie seed. I planted it, I watered it, and not one budgie grew. Not one. I've been ripped off. I bought a Barbie doll. I put it on the Barbie to play with it. It melted. <laughs> what a rip-off. I didn't get what I thought I was going to get. And today we're finding out that God has been ripped off. God has actually been ripped off by his people. We're looking at that from the book of Malachi. Now, the book of Malachi, actually, in what we read today, it might have jogged your memory. It, it goes right back to the beginning of the story of God's people. We heard a little bit about it there, but so that we can understand what's happening in Malachi, I just want to take you right from one end of the Old Testament to the other in the next two or three minutes. It's only 1,500 years to cover. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> so, so if you remember, if not that long ago, we're actually looking at the book of Genesis. And in there, it starts with God's people and God's place under God's rule. Adam and Eve, the Garden of Eden, God speaking to them. But that situation didn't last. There was a simple rule, don't eat that fruit, four words. They couldn't even cope with that. So they end up out of the garden, away from God, living a life that, well, actually living a life that resulted in their death eventually. But God is at work. He continues to work in people. One of the next, I guess, highlights, we'll just do the highlights since we've got 1,500 years to cover, is Abraham. He's a person chosen by God. God says to him, move, go to this place. I promise I'll give it to you and you'll live there as my people. So Abraham moves from what we would call Iraq all the way across to the land that we call Palestine today. And his family is going to be God's people in God's place under God's rule. But he doesn't have a family. He's got no kids. So the story of Abraham and his children takes up most of the rest of Genesis. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And that's what we were doing not that long ago, only a few weeks ago in church. So the book of Genesis ends with God's people getting bigger. Abraham's family, his great-great-grandchildren, have become quite a tribe, really. But the trouble is they're not in God's place anymore. There's been a famine in Palestine, so they've gone down to Egypt. And down there, uh, through Joseph, you probably remember that name. He's the guy at the end of the book of Genesis. Uh, he's actually caring for Egypt. He's become essentially the prime minister of Egypt. And he's saving the world from famine down there. But still not quite, not quite what we were looking for. God's people, yes, living God's way. Yes, Joseph did that. But not in God's place. So we get to the book of Exodus. That's about 400 years, a gap between Genesis and Exodus. It's about 1500 BC when the book of Exodus starts. And God raises up Moses. In those 400 years, the, the people of God have multiplied. They've been prolific breeders. They've actually become hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people. And so through the story of Exodus, 
God takes those people out of Egypt and heads them off towards the promised land. So things are looking really good. Exodus and Leviticus and and the beginning of Numbers, uh, God begins to explain to people what it's like to live in this new place. There's a lot of laws there, including laws about sacrifices that are actually relevant to what we talked about today. There's laws about the temple that they'll set up, all of that's in there. And he's explaining to them, he's explaining to his people what it's like to live as his people while they're moving towards that place. So we move through Exodus and Leviticus. They get right to the, big, the door of the promised land, as it were, and they lose the plot. <laughs> they, they can't trust God enough. They, they freak out. And so they get sent back into the desert in a holding pattern for 40 years. 40 years of wandering in the desert while those people die off. So they never experience God's place. But their children grow up and they're a little bit different. Then we get to Joshua, who's the guy. He leads them into God's place. So that's the story of Joshua where he takes God's people into God's place and you think, cool, this is great. It's all coming together. What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) Well, then you get to the book of Judges where everything goes wrong. (laughs) It's a zoo, the book of Judges. And we've got God's people in God's place, but they're not living under any rules at all. If the book of Judges was a movie, it'd be R-rated. I couldn't watch it. I'd be too freaked out. It's terrible. It's a disaster. And so... They think at the end, what we need is a ruler. We need a king. So we're now moving to, from Judges into Samuel, where the people say, make us like everybody else. Make us a king. Then we'll live under your rule, God. We'll, we'll get it right that time. Well, okay. So we're going to have a king. Uh, there's the first king is Saul. So this is the story of Samuel and Saul. That doesn't really work out. In fact, Saul pretty much leads people into disobedience. <laughs> so... So now David, everybody remembers David from Sunday school, king, the second king, and he's God's person. And, and actually, this is pretty much as good as it gets. He's a person who lives God's way, not all the time, certainly, but he's got, his heart is in the right place. And so he unites the nation, and it's one nation in God's place living under God's rule. His son, Solomon, inherits the kingdom, inherits the kingdom at peace, and he becomes incredibly wealthy and powerful, But actually, that leads to idolatry. Uh, He leads the nation astray. So they really only had David and part of Solomon's reign where they actually got their act together. Uh, Solomon uh, leads the nation astray uh, into idolatry. And after him, the nation splits in two. There's a civil war, essentially. The northern kingdom, which is often called Israel, 10 tribes there, they go their own way. They do their own thing. And the southern kingdom, just two tribes there, Uh, They are off on their own as well. Well, that doesn't help either. In fact, that only makes things worse. And so people fall into more and more idolatry and just crazy stuff. And Solomon's descendants and the kings who come after him in the books of Kings and Chronicles, they're they're pretty ordinary, actually. (laughs) If if you don't remember many of their names, that's because they're not very memorable. (laughs) Uh, You might remember Josiah. I don't know we have a Josiah here this morning. Anybody named Josiah? He's one of the good ones. But apart from that, Well, there's not much to say. And so they just continue to lead God's people further and further away. And that's where all the prophets come in. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Malachi is one of them as well. Heaps of them, they come one after the other. And essentially they say the same thing in different ways. They say, remember everything that God has done. Remember all that that you learned back in Exodus and Leviticus. Start living like that. Start living like God's people. Or this is what's going to happen. So prophets aren't just about the future. Yeah, they talk about that, 
but they talk about why that's going to happen and they talk about it with the aim of changing the present. So prophecy is not just, you know, who's going to win the Melbourne Cup next week, but it's about how you live now and the consequences of that. And it goes even further back to what God has done. So the prophets, they say essentially the same thing over and over again, but to very little effect. Uh, the northern kingdom, they pay the least attention. They're wiped out. Uh, the Assyrians come down. Actually, the Assyrians from Turkey, from Syria, not far from where the Kurds are. If you've seen that map on the news, they come down. They wipe out the northern kingdom. Gone. Disappeared off the face of the earth. Nobody knows where they are. They've disappeared. They've, they never came back. The southern kingdom, they didn't learn that lesson. They didn't pay much attention. I mean, they had their ups occasionally, but mostly it was downs. And so then the Babylonians come along and finish them off and take away the people in exile. The temple's destroyed, uh, the this country's a mess, and the people are prisoners of war, essentially hostages in Babylon, which is today what we would call Iraq. 17 years go by and things change. These are the stories of Daniel, by the way. People like Daniel and Esther, they lived about that time. They lived in that situation. Things change and they're allowed to go home. So they rebuild the temple, Temple 2.0. <laughs> as it were, 2.0. And they remember the stories of the prophets, and this is getting towards what the video is talking about, the stories of the prophets that in the future there'd be a, a, an amazing time, a wonderful time, things would really get better. They rebuild the temple and it's kind of, meh. I hear that word a lot in my house, meh. <laughs> one of my family members, it's just about the only word I hear, meh, whatever. Like they rebuild the temple, yeah, it gets going, that's Ezra and that's Nehemiah, they rebuild the city, they start the whole system going again, but, but people look at it, and actually the day it's, it's, uh, it's switched on, as it were, the temple, the day it's turned on, the day it starts again, half the people are so excited, the young people are so excited that it's been rebuilt, but there are still some very old people who remember the old one, and they're weeping because of their disappointment. And so it's a really a mixed time. And people just, well, they felt ripped off. <laughs> That's where we get to Malachi. Uh, the temple has been rebuilt, the sacrifices have been restarted, but, but they just think, yeah, what's God done? For, it's just not happening, you know? We're still not, we're not enjoying the, what we think we deserve as God's people. Yes, we're in his place. Yes, we're kind of obeying most of his rules. So where is it? Where's this golden age? So, well, if you can't be bothered, God, then why should we? And that's how we get to the book of Malachi. That's where it starts. People start off by saying, meh, you don't really love us. You don't really love us, God. And God says, yeah, I do. I do. And he takes them right back to Jacob, the story of Jacob and Esau, which is what we did. I don't know if this was planned. I'm sure it was because Luke is brilliant. But it's a brilliant transition from Genesis to Malachi because he, that's where he, Malachi takes them, all the way back to Genesis. Remember, remember those stories he said to them? Remember how I chose Jacob? I loved him and I chose him and you're his descendants. I've loved you. Don't, you, you. Remember that. Remember that I chose you. And remember that I've preserved you all this time. You still exist. You're still here. You've made it through 1,500 years, more or less, of ups and downs. I have loved you. I have chosen you. But for some people, that's not enough. What has God done for us? He goes on to show in Malachi here, if you think I haven't loved you, take, take, go out of your tent, turn right, go down the street, and, well, it's a, it's a little bit way down the road, and look at your Edom, 
the descendants of Esau, because that place has been destroyed. That's what it's really like to live under my judgment, to not be loved by me. That city, that nation, Esau's descendants, they were destroyed. They never came back. So you have been loved. You've been disciplined, but you've survived and you're still here. So that's what Malachi is doing with that comparison with Edom. He's taking it right back to the beginning and saying, I have loved you, I have chosen you, I've kept you alive. It's not as good as you want it to be. Yes, there are reasons for that and we'll get to them. But I have loved you and I have chosen you. And I think it's pretty easy for us to fall into a similar trap, isn't it? Is our life as good as it could be right now? Probably not. Could it be slightly better? Yep, for some people it could be a lot better. And maybe you're thinking, does God really love me? I mean, really, you know, with all the problems I've got, with all the difficulties I've had, how do I know God loves me? It's easy to fall into that attitude, isn't it? For for most of us, it's never enough. You know, I don't know if you've ever uh, dealt with little kids. Uh, You take them on a trip to the zoo, you buy them an ice cream, they catch the ferry home in Sydney, you catch the ferry home, and then on the way home they say... You know, at the end of the day, you're all tired, you're exhausted, it's cost you a fortune to go to the zoo. And the way home, they say, can we watch it? Can we go to the movies now? (laughs) This never happened to anybody else. Can we go to the movies now? They come out with, because it's never enough for kids. I don't know if it's any different for us either, is it? Is anybody here ever said, I've got enough, I'm happy, I I, I don't want any more money, God's blessed me enough, I don't need any more? We always want more, and if you don't want more, there's a whole uh, profession designed to make you want more. It's called advertising. <laughs> and there are th- uh, very brilliant people who uh, study hard to make you want more. It's very easy for us to not be satisfied with what we've got and to believe that God hasn't really loved us. But he has. He's chosen us. You know, j- just as he chose Jacob through no... Uh, Jacob was in the womb when this happened. He hadn't done anything good or bad. So God has chosen you as well. He has chosen you and he has loved you. The only thing that you brought to your salvation was your need for it. And you contributed as much to your salvation as a corpse does to its own health. (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) Nothing at all. So I I go through days like this, and I'm sure that you do, where you think, oh, does God really love me? On those days, think of what God has done for you that he's chosen you, that he's loved you, or gave him further back. Look at the life of Christ. Jesus came and he lived and he died and he rose from the dead. So God's love may, may not be obvious in your circumstances now. There are people here who are going through really difficult things. I don't want to make light of that. But when in those difficulties you feel, I don't know if God loves me, just think back to history really, of all the things that he's done for you in Christ and the fact that he's chosen you and you're still here. He has preserved you. I don't know how long, who knows how much longer he'll preserve us for, we don't know. But we look back in history and that's where we see God's love demonstrated. That's where we see it performed in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, in the gift of the Spirit, in its work in us. That's where we see God's love in action. So that's the first section here. Uh, People are complaining God doesn't love us. And Malachi, well, the Lord's saying through Malachi, I have loved you, I've chosen you. If you don't think I, if you want to see what being outside my love looks like, go and check out the nation of Edom. They don't exist. 
They'll be, they've been judged. They've failed to exist at all. But the trouble is, they have not loved him. I mean, there's really two questions that we're dealing with today. What has God done for us? How do we respond to him? So we've done the first one. What has God done for us? He's chosen us. He's loved us. He's rescued us. What have we done for him? How do we respond to that? That's the second half of this chapter here. A son honours his father, a slave his master. If I'm a father, where is the honour due to me? If I'm a master, where is the respect due to me? Says the Lord Almighty. And the priests are in on it as well. The priests show contempt for my name. What are you talking about, they say? We've got this whole religion thing happening. And God says, just have a little bit of a closer look at what's really going on here. If you go back to Leviticus in Numbers, where the, the sacrificial system was set up, where all those rules were laid out, it's very clear what kinds of sacrifices God wants. It's crystal clear. I won't go into all the details now. You can read them all for yourself another time. But one that stands out is that the animal sacrifices were to be perfect animals, without spot or blemish. They would be the very best animals that people had. Most of the people there in that day would have been, I guess, self-sufficient sort of farmers, you might say. So it was a widespread thing. And all of them were asked to give their very best animals as a sacrifice in the temple. But by the time we get to Malachi, people are thinking, oh, do I have to? Really? I mean, it's not like God needs it technically, is it? You know, so, so if I just get rid of one of the dodgy ones, one of the lame ones, one of the blind ones, one of the three-legged goats, well, I mean, it's not going to make that much difference to God. And it's kind of doing what he asked to do mostly. And it's helping me as well. So, you know, good for me, good for God. Because if you've ever been involved in raising animals, it's not just that they had, you know, this many and they lost one, but they had to give up their best one. So what that means, if you're a farmer and you're trying to build up your herd, is that's your future. That your best animal is the one you want to breed from. That's the, one, that's the future of your herd, the future of your livelihood. So to give that one away really hurts. It's not just one of 10 or 20 or whatever. It's the best one. It's the future that you're writing off. So that's a big thing to ask a grazier, to ask a farmer to give up their very best animal. Because not just a loss now, but it's a loss into the future. So I, mean, I don't know, that might not have come through for those of us who aren't breeders of animals. So there's a big sacrifice. Don't get me wrong. But they are being asked to really, really put their trust in God that he would still provide for their herd to grow even if once, once they lost their best animal. It's a huge thing. But it was a step that most people couldn't make, apparently, in Malachi's day. They were saying, if we get rid of the dodgiest one, because actually we don't want that one to breed, you don't want the sick one to survive, you don't want the lame one to breed, let's write that one off, sacrifice that. We kind of almost ticked the box for God and we've helped ourselves as well. So win a win a chicken dinner. You know, hey, what do you reckon, God? Is that okay? And God says, no. <laughs> it's pretty clear, isn't it? That what they were doing is actually ripping God off. They were cheating God. They weren't giving God what he deserved. They were, they were just trying to slide in, weren't they? If we just kind of slide in, we'll be okay. And God says, no, that is not acceptable. Those people who do that are under a curse. Now, that's a pretty extreme thing. I've been cursed by more than one person in my life. But being cursed by God, wow, that's a big deal. And that's what God says. Those people who try and cheat me, well, they're going to face judgment. That's bears thinking about, doesn't it? 
to being actually cursed by God. God should be honoured and he will be honoured, but not by them. So I don't know if you noticed this when Hayden read it out, but three times in the passage, verse 5, you will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. And you go down to, say, verse 11, uh, I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be, great, will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will, will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations. And again in verse 14, my name is to be feared among the nations. So it's going to happen. People are going to honour God one way or another because that's who God is. He is a great king. He is a great Lord and people all over the world are going to honour him. But these people, no. If they keep going the way they are, they're going to be written off. They're going to come under God's judgement. Other people in other places, they will realise how great God is and they will honour him. So that's what Malachi is saying. If we think we can get away with responding to God in the least possible effort, then we're actually ripping God off and we're in for a very, very nasty surprise. You know, I'm glad that we're not slaughtering animals each week in church. <laughs> you know, one of the things, that's obviously one of the things that's new about the New Testament. The Old Testament, the sacrificial system was huge. It was massive. But thankfully, you're not asking Luke or any of us to, you know, stab your goat up the front of church today. I'm, I'm greatly relieved the sacrificial system has gone away in one sense. In another sense, it's made our lives much harder because it's not as concrete as it used to be. It used to be, I think, pretty simple. Find the best animal, sacrifice it. Not easy to do, expensive, risky, but at least very clear. In the New Testament, the sacrificial language continues, but in a different manner. Let me read to you from Romans chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So the, the sacrifice idea hasn't gone away, but what's being sacrificed is completely different. I mean, Romans 12 is essentially the same as Malachi 1. Romans 12 says, in view of God's mercy, so Paul has spent 11 chapters explaining how awesome God is and his mercy. In view of that, sacrifice. Malachi, same thing. Look back at your history, think about Jacob, think about all of that. In view of that, Sacrifice, but the object of sacrifice is completely different. I don't want your goat anymore. We don't want your goat. What is it that God wants? He wants you as a living sacrifice. That's a much bigger ask. It's, a, it's dead set. It's, it's heaps easier to find your best goat and to offer that up than it is to offer yourself. <laughs> it's always easier to sacrifice something else, isn't it? I don't know if you've been following the news this week, but uh, there's been a lot about horse racing and the treatment of horses and how terribly they're treated and how many horses are essentially sacrificed to greed because that's what it is. And we were talking about this at our, in, our, in our house around our table and we've come up with a solution. If the horse isn't running fast enough and they want to shoot it, or if the horse is injured and they shoot it, shoot the jockey too. <laughs> <laughs> Shoot the jockey as well, because if the horse isn't running fast enough, well, that's the jockey's fault, and if the horse gets injured, well, who's in charge of the horse, the jockey? Shoot the jockey too. What, how, what effect do you think that would have on the racing industry? 
how careful would people be if their lives were on the line, if they were being asked to make a sacrifice? That's not far off what we're talking about here. What God expects you to do in response to what he has already done for you in Christ is to offer yourself as a living sacrifice. So, you know, sometimes you get people ask the question, how much money do I need to give to God? Like, what do I need to do? That's the wrong question to ask because now understanding what Jesus has done for you, how much do you think he's worth? Every single dollar you have belongs to him. Every single one is for him and his purpose. And people say, how much time do I have to give to the church? That is completely the wrong question to ask. If you're asking that question, you have not really understood what Jesus did or what God is asking you to do. Because now every single hour that you have belongs to God. And it's used for his purpose. This, This might be a very strange way of thinking. It might be a new way of thinking to you, but I think... This is one of the most important things that you will ever understand. And if you don't grasp this, I don't think you've really got the guts of discipleship at all. It's not about the minimum that you can give to church to slide in. That's that's what they were trying to do, and it wasn't going to work for them, and it's not going to work for you. Every dollar you've got belongs to God and is used for his purpose. Now, some of that money comes here, yes. Some of it goes to pay your rent, yes. That's God's purpose, that you provide for your, a roof for your family. Some of it goes to buy food for your family. That's God's purpose. If God's given your family, it's your job to look after them. Some of your money goes to the government. That's part of God's purpose. They look after us. They provide hospitals and schools and police. So all of our lives now belong to God. And every single dollar that you've got belongs to him and is used for his purpose. And how you spend your money, it's not like you can give 10% of your money to the church and do the rest with whatever you like with the other 90%. It all all belongs to him. And it's the same with all your time. You don't have to spend all your time in here. You can't because we'll all go home (laughs) and you'll be stuck here in an empty building and look really odd. But all of your life belongs to him. So whether you're teaching a classroom or you're managing a lab or you're putting windmills in the ground or or you're making a business or whatever it is that you're doing, all of that, you understand what God is doing in the world and then you live a whole life around that. You live your whole life around that. So the way that you keep accounts and the way that you milk cows and the way that you fix machinery, you can do that in ways that honour God and that advance his purpose and that bring him glory or you can teach schools and you can be a chaplain and you can be a mum in ways that actually make God look like an idiot and make people spit on his name. So you see the huge difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. One of them is that actually now it's us that's the living sacrifice. It's every dollar, it's every hour, it's every thought. It's all about your life and living the whole thing for God. If you haven't done that, you're ripping God off. If you're the kind of person who thinks, well, I think there are basically two reasons why people get stuck on this. One is ignorance. They've never thought of it before. And that's fair enough. I mean, how can you never think? How can you think about something you haven't been told about? You know, one is, and the other is just laziness. I couldn't be bothered. You know, there are people who think, oh, it's really hard, so I'll just do the minimum to get by in the whole Christian thing. 
You know, I'll turn up to church and I'll chuck a bit of spare change. But the rest of the time, I'll just do what I want to do. I'll live my life. You know, I'll give God Sunday morning, maybe Wednesday night, sometimes if I'm not too tired after work, and a couple of bucks, and then I, you know, tick that box. No. <laughs> That's not going to work. That's not how Jesus lived, and that's not how he expects you to live in response to that. When I went to uni, uh, sorry, after I left school, I got a job in a factory. I was an apprentice, and I went to university at night. And we were part of a system where we were apprentices and going to university. And the guy a year ahead of me, I'll call him uh, Nigel. Nigel was a year ahead of me as an apprentice at university. I found university to be pretty hard. So school was not that hard for me, but university was really hard. So the first year... My marks went a lot less than I thought they were at school. And the second year, they were even less. And the third year was really, really, really hard. And all through that, Nigel, who was a year ahead of me, he would say, don't worry, Graham, 51% is 1% wasted effort. 51% is 1% wasted effort. Nigel, Nigel, we worked in the same factory, or at least I think we worked there, because I never saw him there. He had this marvellous talent for disappearing. I swear he could teleport. Whenever there was work to be done, Nigel wasn't there. Whenever the boss turned up to see what we were doing, Nigel appeared again. It's like, where the heck have you been all day? So he was this, just that kind of guy. 51% is 1% wasted effort. We got to the, our course was six years long. We got to the third year. The end of third year, it was really hard. 80% of people had left. And uh, we got our results back from third year. Some of the, a couple of the subjects I didn't pass. And uh, Nigel was nowhere to be seen. But fourth year rolled around. Uh, he didn't turn up at work. He didn't turn up at university and he wasn't seen up. We didn't miss him much, actually, at work, especially he wasn't, wasn't lamented, his loss. But uh, after about three weeks at uni, we realised he wasn't there. I said, where's Nigel? And somebody opened, literally this happened, I had the Sydney Morning Herald in there and they opened up the page of the Sydney Morning Herald, there's an article on unemployment and there's Nigel. <laughs> it's a poster child for unemployment. <laughs> it, literally, he was right there in the paper, we couldn't believe it. That's where he is, he's unemployed. It, you know, that whole attitude of 51% is 1% wasted effort, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work in this life. It doesn't work in any part of life. And it certainly doesn't work with God. And I, I tell you, if that's what you're thinking, wow, you are in for a big disappointment <laughs> one day. This is a warning to you. that That's not what God is expecting from you. Jesus didn't give up, you know, well, I'm not doing anything on Friday afternoon, I suppose. I could die. Yeah, sure. And he didn't, like, make a blood donation for you. <laughs> he actually died. <laughs> All of him. He was completely dead. Go and read through the accounts of his crucifixion and think about what he went through. And then think about, well, okay, that, that's what he did. Now what do I do in response to that? What's my reasonable response? What's my, what does Paul use? True and proper response to that. He gave his whole life for you, and you are to give the only thing that makes sense. The only response that makes sense, the only response that is true and proper is your whole life for him. Isn't that fair? I mean, really, it's just obvious when you think about it like that. So if you've never thought about it before, can I encourage you to think about that today? If you thought that you just have to do a few things, I don't know what was in your mind, what you were thinking, I just have to tick a couple of boxes and I'll be right. Don't. Don't be like that. Malachi is a warning. That will not work. You cannot rip God off. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. The other type of people, I think, are, who've, who've fallen into that trap are people who've just never been able to connect the, the dots. Like, yeah, God, I understand all of that. I understand I want to live my life in response to him, but I can't make the connection. I can't join the dots like that. 
And maybe there's a few people like here, like that here this morning. Well, today's the day that that can finish. You know, today's the day that that can end, where you can begin to think differently about things, where you can begin to see things a different way. Because what God wants, I think, is not, a, not really more things for you to do, but it's the way you do what you already do that makes a difference. It's the attitude with which you do it. It's the purpose with which you do it. It's the understanding of how it fits into all the other things that God does. That's what's different about the difference that Malachi wants to make. And if you've never connected those worlds today, I'd love to talk to you afterwards. I do that all the time. It's all I do all week is talk about what God's doing in the world and then how he's made people and how those two come together. It's just astounding. You wouldn't believe the conversations I have. You couldn't make them up. What's an example? A couple of weeks ago, did I tell you about the archaeologist? Have I told you that? Oh, young lady, archaeology. What's the use of archaeology? I'll tell you. It is useful. So this young lady done archaeology. We sent her off to Central Asia because in Central Asia, there's a place where, there are plenty of places where people think we are Kazakhs, therefore we are Muslims. The two are the same thing. We've always been like this. We'll never be any different. Somebody realised people were thinking that and he set up the Department of Archaeology at the, at the National University. Why is that? Because they're actually digging up old churches, hundreds of years old, and they're making displays and they're educating people about their history. So what's happening now is people, God willing, are going to start changing their mind. They're going to change their mind from we are Muslim, we've always been Muslim, we will always be Muslim, to actually, hang on a minute, we were something else. Or maybe we could be something else. Do you see what's happening there in people's heads? And all that's coming through archaeology. I can't imagine a more useless profession than archaeology. <laughs> really, on the face of it. But God has gifted that person. They are so excited about it. So excited. And we've been able to connect them with the purpose of what God is doing. So try me. Come to me and say, oh, I'm this. I bet you can't find a place for me. Go on, have a go. We'll see what we... We've, we had someone pick us on funeral director once. We fixed them right up. Don't worry. Because amazingly, people all over the world, what's one thing they have in common? They die! Yes! <laughs> so if you're a person who's never understood how God's made you and how that fits into the world, today's a great day for you because today can be the end of that and the beginning of seeing yourself as a person made by God and capable of responding to him in every part in every sense, in every way. A lot of that, I guess, will be unpacked later on over the next few weeks. We'll look at uh, how we do that in our marriages, how we do that in our economy, all sorts of different ways. But even if you just want to pray today, there'll be heaps of people here who'd be happy to pray with you. Maybe you think, or you've realised, you know, you've been like Nigel, Mr 51%, and you've just kind of been hoping that you'll skid in, and you've realised that's not going to work. Well, let's pray about that. Maybe you're thinking, oh, I didn't, I didn't understand. I've never made that connection. I'd like to know how God can use me and what God's doing and how I'm part of that. We'd be happy to pray with you. Either way, whatever, we're always happy to pray. In fact, why don't we pray now? Let's finish off by praying. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, first and foremost, we thank you for everything that you have done for us in Jesus. We were dead. We were your enemies. We were hopeless, but you rescued us. You saved us through his life and death. And now you'll equip and empower us through the spirit that you send. So firstly, thank you for everything you have done. Secondly, help us to understand 
how we might respond to that. As Jesus gave his life for us, may we give every breath, every thought, our entire lives, our beings, our will, the whole lot for you. Help us to do that. Amen. Thanks for listening to our message this week. If it stirred your heart and you would like to talk to someone more about it or pray with someone, please get in touch with us at info at follow.church and one of our pastoral team will get back to you as soon as possible. If you'd like more information about Follow and our various ministries, including weekly service times and location, please check out our website, www.follow.church. Thanks again for joining us. God bless.